we're turning this evening to Leviticus chapter 2. And uh, we're going to uh, read the whole of this chapter together. This is the second offering, the meat offering or the grain offering. So let's uh, hear God's word uh, together. Let's. Leviticus chapter 2. And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it, and put frankincense thereon. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he shall take thereout his handful of the flour thereof, and of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar, to be an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. And the remnant of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. And if thou bring an oblation of a meat offering bacon in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. And if thy oblation be a meat offering bacon in a pan, it shall be a fine flour unleavened, mingled with oil. Thou shalt part it in pieces, and pour oil thereon. It is a meat offering. And if thy oblation be a meat offering bacon in the frying pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And thou shalt bring the meat offering that is made of these things unto the Lord. And when it is presented unto the priest, he shall bring it unto the altar. And the priest shall take from the meat offering a memorial thereof, and shall burn it upon the altar. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. And that which is left of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. No meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven, for ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. As for the oblation of the first fruits, ye shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be burnt on the altar for a sweet savour. And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. And if thou offer a meat offering of thy first fruits unto the Lord, thou shalt offer for the meat offering of thy first fruits green ears of corn dried by the fire, even corn beaten out of full ears. And thou shalt put oil upon it and lay frankincense thereon. It is a meat offering. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it, part of the beaten corn thereof, and part of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof. It is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Amen. And may the Lord give us understanding as we uh, think about this passage this evening. As I said, uh, this is the second offering that we're coming to this evening, the meat offering or the grain offering. And if you remember, right back at the beginning, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we laid uh, a bit of a platform for the offerings, we, when we come to them, we're looking for Christ. And we see that Christ fulfills these offerings. And so 
Those of you who like titles, this evening Christ is our meat offering. We're considering Christ our meat offering this evening. And what I want to do uh, this evening is particularly I want to look at the ingredients that we find in the meat offering. I think each of the ingredients points to an aspect of Christ and his life. Um, But I think before we we do that, it's worth just looking at some of the basics, some of the um, preliminaries, as it were, about this offering to sort of get a grasp of what the offering's about. Um, Obviously, it's called a meat offering or a grain offering. Um, It's the only offering that doesn't have the shedding of blood. It's a very unique offering in that sense. It was product of the ground was brought. You notice that all the things that were brought were things that were cultivated. You have uh, fine flour and oil and frankincense and so on and salt. These things were things that were from the ground. And of course the word meat um, we find right back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 29. It's the same uh, word. Uh, that we find uh, recorded in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 29, where God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, in verse 29, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. Of course, they didn't actually eat flesh until after the flood. A man was not commanded to do so till, till then. But everything that was from the ground was given to them for food, for meat, to eat. And so when we come to the meat offering, it's an offering up of the, the fruit of the ground, as it were. And it's worth just uh, noting some of the similarities. You notice that in verse 2, it's a sweet savour unto the Lord. We thought about the burnt offering being a sweet savour offering. And both the burnt offering, the meat offering, and then the peace offering was also a sweet savour. Chapter 3, and uh, notice in um, verse 5, it was a sweet savour unto the Lord. So these three come together, the burnt offering, the meat offering, and the peace offering. They were all sweet savour offerings. The other thing to note is a similarity and a difference at the same time is that this offering was not all burnt on the altar. Remember we thought last week about the burnt offering that the whole of the animal was placed and it was consumed but here in the meat offering only part of the offering was actually placed upon the altar. You notice that in verse 2 when they were to bring these ingredients it says there that the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar. In other words part of it was taken placed upon the altar And the rest was actually consumed by Aaron and his sons, by the priests. And it says that in verse 3 there, the remnant of the meat offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. And if you go into chapter 6, it details more there as to the eating of it and so on. And that's similar to the peace offering, which uh, when we consider that, you'll notice that not all of it was placed upon the altar. There was a feast and part of this offering was given to Aaron and his sons for their consumption to fill them it was not all burnt but it was all consumed it was all given there was nothing left of it it was all given up to God and uh, uh, when we consider the peace offering we'll think a little bit more about the significance of this but I think here um, we can just say this 
Not only did it satisfy God, but it satisfied man as well. And when we think about the work of Christ, it not only was an offering unto God, but it was also something that satisfies us, doesn't it? It brings satisfaction to us in our hearts. I think particularly the meat offering uh, by feeding the priests, it represents and shows to us that when as Christians we give our lives in service and in sacrifice, we're to give of our things to those in the work of God. Um, But I don't want to particularly dwell on that this evening. Um, I think that's a a side issue from some of the things that we're thinking about. And I think when we come to the peace offering, we want to, that's something that we'll consider more. This, this sitting down and eating the food becomes very significant when we think about uh, the peace offering and, and how they eat and share fellowship as they eat the meal together. But uh, uh, the other thing to notice, of course, is there's no bloodshed, as we said. Um, and this is, of course, where Cain went wrong with his offering. Cain brought a meat offering to the Lord. He brought the produce of the ground. And in one sense, that was was perfectly acceptable. He brought an offering uh, just like this one here, in in a sense, but he didn't come with the shedding of blood beforehand. And so that's why the Lord was not pleased with his offering. Another thing to notice is there's no laying on on of hands in this offering, uh, like the burnt offering that we considered last week. Like the peace offering uh, in chapter 3, there's the laying on of hands. There's none of that. There's no confession of sin or of guilt uh, because we have the produce of the ground again. And I think that as, just as a sort of uh, overarching theme, uh, when we think about the meat offering, the meat offering points to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ's life. The burnt offering pointed to his death, his sacrificial death, And his perfect death, it was the consecration, the giving up of life. But here, when we think about the the produce of the ground, it speaks of labour, doesn't it? We have to cultivate and work the ground. And so when we come to the meat offering, it's speaking more about the life of Christ and his labours, his consecrated life and his life of devotion and service to God. So when we come to this, this offering this evening, that's what it's pointing more towards, not towards his death, but more towards his life and and, uh, his life of service to his heavenly Father. And I think as we reflect upon that in terms of ourselves, giving ourselves as a sacrifice to God, we're not only are we to give just the spiritual part of our lives, but we're to give the physical part of our lives, every part of us, not just, as it were, our souls, but even our hands and our feet and so on. You remember what uh, Paul said, wherefore, he says, whether therefore ye eat or drink, whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. We're to give every part of our lives, even the simplest things, even our labours, even when we're working in a normal day, all of it's to be done to the glory of God. Just as Christ's life, even when he wasn't going about doing good and healing the sick and so on, every part of his life was devoted in service to God, And so when we come to the meat offering, that's what we are really thinking about, the life of Christ. And as we shall see when we come to the peace offering, we, we have the burnt offering, the death of Christ, the meat offering, the life of Christ, and these two things offered up in service to God. And what's the result? Well, we as believers in Christ have peace and fellowship with God. And so there's this, this link between the three there. Our lives are to be 
sacrificial lives, aren't they? You think about the early believers in the book of Acts, how they sold all their possessions, they sold their land, and so on, to give to the work of Christ. And physically, we are also to give our lives, aren't we, in service to Christ. And you think about some of the characters in the New Testament, how it's described, the Nesiphorus, Nesiphorus, I should say, in 2 Timothy, and chapter 1. Paul describes him in a, a, a wonderful way there. Uh, and it's really, he's using the language of the meat offering, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16. He says this, The Lord uh, give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, in 2 Timothy 1.16, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. And that language there, he oft refreshed me, is the idea of being satisfied by food. He refreshed me with... With his, uh, with his life, he, he, he was somebody who came in and spiritually refreshed me. And it's the same idea of, of the offering of the meat offering. You see, Onesiphorus gave his life like a meat offering to Paul and he refreshed him. And you could say the same about Philemon. You just go on uh, a couple of books there, Philemon chapter, uh, Philemon verse 7, I should say. Exactly the same language, verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Paul's talking there about Philemon. He says, look, you you refreshed people. You were like a meat offering, a drink offering, that people drank and, and ate from, and they were refreshed. And that's what we're to be like in our lives. So as we come to the meat offering this evening, it's a... It's not only a picture of the life of Christ, but it's showing us how we and our lives should be to one another as Christians. We should refresh one another. I wonder if that could be said of us. Are our lives refreshing spiritually to one another? Are we those who bring refreshments? Well, the meat offering in that sense was a refreshment to God, wasn't it? It was an offering up of the produce of the ground. And I said... um, I said last week and the week before about this intimate connection between all the offerings, and I kind of left that as a hanging statement. Um, It's worth just noting a couple of verses where we see this connection, that the two are always offered together. You just turn with me to Numbers uh, chapter 28. Numbers chapter 28. As I said, I keep saying that they're intimately connected Um, that you never had the meat offering without having first the burnt offering. Numbers 28, and uh, you notice uh, verse 11 and 12 and so on. It says, In the beginnings of your months you shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord, two young bullocks and one ram, seven lambs of the first year without spot. And then you come into verse 12, and three tenth steels of flour for a meat offering, immediately following the burnt offering, we get told that they were to offer the meat offering with it. Um, we could turn as well to Numbers 29, just go over the next, into the next chapter. Um, you find in verse 2 there, And ye shall offer a burnt offering for a sweet savour unto the Lord, one young bullock, one ram, and seven lambs of the first year without blemish, and their meat offering shall be of flour mingled with oil. Notice that word there here's the burnt offering and you'll offer their meat offering with it. There's always this connection. You never offered a meat offering 
without first coming with the blood and offering the burnt offering. And there's lots of other places where we could uh, note this connection, always the meat offering following the burnt offering. And uh, you remember in Judges, Samson's father Manoah, when the angel of the Lord met him in Judges 13, he offered a burnt offering and a meat offering together. And you remember how the angel of the Lord rose up and he did wondrously, didn't he? you notice also, if you just uh, turn back there to uh, Numbers chapter 28, because there's there's also something else that's mentioned here, but it's not mentioned in our chapter in Leviticus, that often with the meat offering there was a drink offering. Numbers 28 and verse 14 speaks about the drink offerings, and it talks about it being half a hin of wine unto a bullock, and so on. There was this drink offering that was often offered with the meat offering, poured out on top of the meat offering. And I wonder, um, people often ask the question, why was the drink offering not mentioned here in Leviticus chapter 2? Some people suggest because Leviticus chapter 2 is at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings and they would never have had access to wine. Not until they came into the land would they be able to access vineyards and wine but then you could ask the same question well how much access did they have to fine flour and oil and frankincense so it's an interesting you know just for your thoughts to wonder why the drink offering is not mentioned here but of course the drink offering again is also speaking of ourselves isn't it you remember how Paul in Philippians chapter 2 described his life as being literally poured out and uh, he was using again the language of Uh, the meat offering here, uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17. He says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. And if you've got a a margin Bible there where it says offered, it says poured out, that's what it literally means. Paul says, look, I've, I've given my life like a drink offering, poured out for God. And again, what a... A picture that is for us, what we should be like in our service to God, poured out for him, in a sense left nothing behind, given all to the glory of God. So that's just some backgrounds, but I want to look at these ingredients with you this evening, and I have a number of headings that, as we think about Christ, and so um, you'll notice that there are, um, I think, four ingredients that were to be included and two that were not to be included. So we're going to look at these six things, or these, these, um, these different ingredients this evening. And I want you to notice, firstly, as we look at the ingredients, uh, the sufferings of Christ's life are noted here. The sufferings of Christ's life. The first ingredient in uh, verse 1 there is that that shall be a fine flour. Of course, flour is a product of grain, And of course, to get flour, you have to mill it, you have to grind it, it has to be bruised, it has to be ground into powder. Traditionally, of course, it would have been ground between two stones and crushed to release the flour. And of course, bread in the Bible is a picture of life, the staff of life, isn't it? It's the thing that people need to survive. Man shall not live by bread alone, the Lord Jesus Christ said. Well, that's because we believe that Bread sustains us and looks after us and cares for us, our bodies. That's what we need. And so Christ, of course, is the bread of life. 
He is the one who said, I am the bread of life, isn't he? And the picture here of flour, it's an emblem in the scriptures of deep suffering, being ground and crushed and pressed and bruised. And of course, Christ suffered in his death. We thought about that last week in in the burnt offering. There's a picture of the suffering there as we see the animal being offered up. But Christ suffered in his life as well, didn't he? You see, the cross was the pinnacle of his his sufferings. It was the, the Passio Magna, as they say. It was the very apex. But his whole life was a, was a life of suffering. It was a life of woe. His whole life was poured out before God. And of course, Christ suffered in every part of him, didn't he? He suffered in his head, in his hands, in his feet, his side, his cheek, and so on. You go through virtually every part of the human body, Christ suffered. But his life was one, wasn't it, of continual Suffering. He was grieved, he was pressed, he was tried continually, bruised daily in his constant service for God's. You just think how grieved he would have been with sin. Here's the, the perfect, the sinless Son of God. He's come into this world. And of course, he knew everyone's hearts. You just think about ourselves as Christians when we hear about some hideous sin, something that's perhaps mentioned on the news. Or perhaps we think about, say, the the sin of abortion and and something inside us recoils, doesn't it? We're horrified as we see the awful effects of sin. But how much more Christ would have been grieved to see the sin around him as as the perfect and pure and holy Son of God. How he would have been so, as it were, upset within his own soul. We get upset when we, for example, we see someone who's sick and... Or someone who's died and we think about death and it upsets us, doesn't it? But how much more for Christ? He was life and he gave life to all. Death was not part of the original creation. Of course, Christ is the resurrection and the life. How much more would he, as he walked around this fallen world, been so upset and and the suffering that he would have felt in his soul? I think it's amazing when you think of that, that Christ even condescended to come into this world, this, this world of so much woe and hatred to him. I think it's even more amazing, isn't it, when we think that Christ is the Son of God and who is omniscient, that he knew all that was before him before he ever stepped into this world. He knew the Scriptures, he knew what the Scriptures said, he knew that he was going to have to bear our guilt and bear our sin and he was going to have to suffer on the cross. You know, we don't know, do we, what pain or heartache lies around the corner. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but Christ did. He knew what he was going to have to suffer. He knew all about Judas Iscariot before he even chose him as one of his disciples. He knew he was going to betray him. He knew that Simon, his, his disciple, would, would forsake him, didn't he? He knew all about what he was going to do in denying him. He knew about the disciples running away at Gethsemane before it happened, He knew all about these things. He knew Thomas would doubt him. All the suffering that he he had even in his life. You just uh, turn with me to Psalm 69. Here's one of the scriptures that Christ would have known even before he entered into this world. And it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, a messianic psalm. Psalm 69 and verse 20. It says there, 
Psalm 69, verse 20, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. You see, there he knew about the heaviness that was going to be upon his heart. He knew there would be none to comfort him, none to take pity. He knew that before he came. If you think about Psalm 55, that psalm that speaks of the betrayal of, the, of Judas Iscariot. Look at verse 12. Psalm 55 and verse 12. For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him, but it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. Look at verse 14. We took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. Let death seize upon them. Let them go down quick into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. He knew all about Judas Iscariot and all that he was going to do. You see, it was not an enemy, but it was his friend, someone he took sweet counsel with. And I think that's amazing, isn't it, that Christ, even though he knew all of this, he had this devotion to the service of his heavenly Father. He just strives on, doesn't he? There's, a, there's just a life of self-sacrifice for all of those around him. He never stopped, did he? Even though he endured the sharpest afflictions and, and the extremest miseries in this life, and yet he still pressed on, didn't he? He was never, he was never discontent. He was never uh, complaining about his lot. He just went on, just steadfastly, doing the Father's will. And yet we could ask ourselves, couldn't we, what about us? So often our interests come first, don't they? It wasn't the same with Christ, was it? He was always thinking of others. He was always working and labouring and performing the miracles and healing the sick and cleansing lepers and so on for others. But so often we, we're so concerned about ourselves, aren't we? Self-promotion, self-preservation. Number one, you know, when, he, when, when times get tough, we like to think particularly about ourselves. But Christ's heart, it, it was just willingly resigned to his Father's will. And shouldn't our aim to be more like our Saviour in our lives? Shouldn't we have more of the same attitude to be... Uh, no, there shouldn't be any discontent in our lives. But we should press on in, in the service to God. You see, whatever our suffering, whatever our sorrow, whatever God gives us in his, in his perfect providence, we should always strive, shouldn't we, to do good and to love one another like Christ did. He had a perfect love for all those whom he met. And you remember what... Paul says, love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. You see, it was Christ's meat and drink, wasn't it, to do his Father's will. But notice, secondly, the consistency of Christ's graces, the consistency of Christ's graces. Because you notice there, it's not just flour that they were to bring for the meat offering, but it was to be fine flour, and of course, fine flour is flour without any blemish in it. It's got no unevenness in it, no coarseness. It's to be flour that has all the bran and the chaff removed. It was placed through numerous sieves to make it this pure and perfect and fine flour. 
And it's an emblem of the perfection, the consistency, the excellency of Christ's life and and graces. It's different from his sinlessness. We were thinking about that last week, how all the parts of the animal were divided up and checked to make sure they were without blemish. This is a different aspect. We're thinking about the life of Christ, his graces, his duties. There was no unevenness in the way that Christ went about his life. Every duty that he did was unchanged by, even by the circumstances. Every grace was in its perf- perfection. There was none in excess, you know, none too little of, none out of place. You think about Christ, how he was always firm and he was unmoved. And yet at the same time he was gentle and he was lowly and he was humble, wasn't he? And yet this isn't the same with us, is it? We're we're not like our Lord Jesus Christ. One minute we're full of zeal, perhaps, for the things of the gospel and for Christ, and yet the next we can be full of apathy. We blow hot and cold, don't we? We can one minute be very backward and then hasty. One minute we're very steadfast in, in the things of the Lord and then we're wavering. We can have energy one minute and then we're lethargic the next. But it was not so with Christ. Everything that Christ did had that evenness. Every grace, every duty was performed with this this wonderful, uh, we could say, no coarseness in it. You just think about the contrast between Christ and his disciples. You think about how all his different disciples, uh, the different characters and the different ways they behaved. You think about Peter and all his zeal. And how often he was so impetuous, you know, you think about him, he strives out, out across the waves. And then the next minute he's sinking. He's got this wonderful zeal one minute, and then he's wavering the next. One minute he's saying, oh, you know, Christ, I will stand with you, I will die with you, everyone else will depart. And then the next minute he's denying his saviour. But Christ, he was unwavering, isn't he? Always just plodding, we could say, just constant and an evenness. You think about John, the beloved disciple. He had a wonderful affection for Christ, didn't he? He was the beloved disciple. And yet he asked who would be the highest in the kingdom of heaven. And he was calling down fire on those who would reject Christ. And so you have this wonderful affection, yet it turns so often into an over-affection. You see, we need to pray, don't we, as those who follow Christ, that we would be even and excellent in every grace. There would be an evenness to our lives. You remember what Paul prayed? He said, only let your conversation, your life, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. So we've seen then there the, uh, the consistency of Christ's graces. But notice thirdly, as we come to the second ingredient, the anointing of Christ's ministry. The anointing of Christ's ministry. So, This person who brings the meat offering would bring fine flour and then we read there that he shall pour oil upon it. So oil was poured out upon this handful of fine flour and of course oil in scripture speaks of setting apart for service. It speaks of consecration. Remember how priests were anointed to their office. Kings were anointed to their office too. And in scripture we find it's an emblem of the Holy Spirit's and his operations and his actions. And of course Christ was set apart, wasn't he? He was anointed by the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. Twice in um, Isaiah we have 
the anointing of Christ mentioned. Just turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 11. And we have the sevenfold anointing of Christ here in uh, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There is this wonderful prophecy of Christ that his ministry, his life, would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. And you just go on into Isaiah chapter 61. Here's a key passage that shows the, uh, the link between the oil which anointed and the Holy Spirit. It says there in Isaiah chapter 61, again speaking of Christ, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And of course, if you just turn over into Luke chapter 4, you remember how the Lord Jesus Christ, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he took out uh, that part of the scriptures. He took out the prophet Isaiah and he read from it and he told him, didn't he, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, he read that uh, passage and in verse, 19, in verse 20 he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The spirit of the Lord anointed the ministry Of Christ, and when we think of Leviticus 2, the oil being poured out, it's a picture of the Spirit anointing the Lord Jesus Christ. In actual fact, Luke's Gospel focuses on this quite a bit in those early chapters. Luke chapter 3 and verse 22, Luke constantly reminds his reader that all that Christ was doing was in the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit was upon him. There, At his baptism in Luke chapter 3 and verse 22 we read, And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. You go to chapter 4 and verse 1. And Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan. Then you go on into uh, chapter 4 and verse 14. After he had been tempted by the devil. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And then, of course, you have uh, 17, 18, 19, and so on, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Luke emphasises this in his early chapters, that Christ, everything that he did was in the power and with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse uh, 9. And, of course... That's a quote directly from uh, the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, that he was, uh, it says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness 
above thy fellows. And you see the point that, that Luke is pressing home to his readers, the point that we are being reminded of here in Leviticus chapter 2, is that whatever Christ did, wherever he went, whether it was preaching the good tidings of the gospel, whether it was healing the sick and binding up the brokenhearted, it was all done in the power and with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Christ never lacked power in his life and in his ministry. And I think there's a lesson for us here, isn't it? We have to ask ourselves, how much do we do in our own power? How much do we seek to do relying upon an arm of flesh? I think we often, to speak personally, but we often go through a day relying upon ourselves, relying upon our own strength, relying upon our own power for all the things that we have to do. So often we trust in our own natural abilities, so often we trust in our own natural advantages or gifts that have been given to us, rather than in the Holy Spirit and trusting him. And I think that's true even in the Lord's work. We can be involved in all sorts of things, whether it's preaching, whether it's children's work, whatever it might be, handing out leaflets, going round, um, giving things out, giving tracts out and so on. And we can so often do these things in our own power. And yet we need to rely, don't we, upon the Holy Spirit and trust him. You see, there's, in truth we might say that without the Spirit everything that we do is useless. We may have the greatest zeal, we may have a vast knowledge of Scripture, we may have boundless energy, but without the Spirit behind all these things, everything's useless. The preachers who come here week by week they may have a wonderful eloquence, they may have a wonderful passion, they may have a wonderful zeal, they may, everything they say may be truthful. But unless there's the Spirit, there's no power. And you see, what we need is truth with power. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said, that they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not enough just to have the truth, it needs to be in spirit, it needs to have that power. And so we can pray this evening, can't we? And I would encourage you to do so. Whoever comes to preach, what Sunday by Sunday, whoever that is, pray that they would be filled with the Spirit and anointed with the Spirit, that it would come with power. I remember a story that Spurgeon told. It's one of those stories that only Spurgeon could tell because I think if anyone else said it, it would be deemed as heresy and so on. But it was a story, he told a story about the devil coming down to earth and uh, walking into a church one day. And there's the devil, and he brings with him a, a whole bunch of angels, but they're all uh, as men. Nobody recognises it's the devil. Nobody knows it's the devil with his uh, legion of angels with him. And it just so happens that on this particular Sunday morning, the preacher doesn't turn up. And so the congregation are wondering who's going to preach, and the devil says, well, I'll, I'll preach. And... Um, he says to you know, the, the congregation, he knows the scriptures very well, he knows them wonderfully, you know, he can quote any part that you ask him to and so on. And he gets up and he, and he delivers this wonderful sermon and he preaches the gospel and he gives us such a clear gospel message about sin and salvation and that you need to come to Christ. And uh, when Satan gets down out of the pulpit, the devils say to him, well, that was the most dangerous thing you could have done. And the devil says, no, it wasn't because there was no spirit. There was no power. I can preach that message all I like. Without the Holy Spirit, no one's lives will ever be changed and affected and brought to Christ. And 
I know that's perhaps a silly story that Spurgeon told, but there's a, a point to it, isn't there? Unless there's the Holy Spirit, there will never be conversions. We'll never see people born again and changed and brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the wonderful thing is that Christ gives us a wonderful promise that if we pray for the Spirit, that he will send him. Remember Luke eleven thirteen. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And I think that's a vital prayer that we need to pray, that we would be filled with the Spirit as God's people. Well then, notice our next ingredient as we think about the fragrance of Christ's offering. The fragrance of Christ's offering. The next ingredient was frankincense. Fine flour, oil poured upon it, and then frankincense was then put upon these two other ingredients. And frankincense was a you know, it was a costly perfume, a very precious perfume made from a resin that comes out of a tree. I think it's found mainly in Arabia and it wasn't particularly found in Israel. So it was a very costly thing to obtain. But when it is burnt, it produces a very enduring and delightful fragrance. It's very sweet. And from what I've read, it's very overpowering. And the emblem here that this fragrance brings before us is of the fragrance and the sweetness of Christ's life. As that offering was being burnt and uh, as the frankincense was producing this wonderful flame, it would have been given off the most wonderful smell. It would have filled that, that courtyard of the, of the tabernacle there with the smell of this fragrance. And when we think about Christ and his offering, his life particularly, it was a, an offering, it was a life that was just full of sweetness and, and fragrance to God's. You notice though, there was something that they couldn't use in contrast. If you turn over, or if you go into chapter, sorry, ch- verse 11, you see they were to bring something sweet, but it was not to be honey. He said, No meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven, for ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering. They were to bring frankincense which produced a wonderful sweet smell but not honey. And that's because when honey burns apparently it corrupts and it ferments. And instead of becoming sweet it becomes bitter. And so they were not to bring honey to represent the sweetness of Christ because when it burns it's it corrupts and so on. So it was not a fit emblem for the life of Christ, but frankincense was. Because Christ's entire life was one that exuded, a, in a sense, a sweet and a fragrant smell in every circumstance. Even when he was crushed and bruised, his life it just yielded this wonderful sweet savour unto God's. Everything that Christ did was sweet, wasn't it? His words were sweet. His actions were fragrant. His every movement, his every thought rose just like sweet perfume. You know when you walk past someone who's got on too much deodorant or a very, you know, some ladies put on lots of expensive perfume and you walk past them and you get this wonderful smell. That's what Christ's life was like. A wonderful, fragrant smell. And you remember what Psalm 45 says about Christ. Uh, that wonderful messianic psalm. Psalm 45 and verses 6 and uh, 7, sorry, 7 and 8. 
Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. You remember the Song of Solomon? How does the bride describe the groom? A bundle of myrrh is my beloved. We read in Song of Solomon chapter 1 and verse 13, you see here's Christ, he's fragrance. Christ was the beloved son of the Father. You remember on those occasions, the baptism, the transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, in whom there is a wonderful sweetness and a fragrance to his life and everything that he does. And of course the remarkable thing about Christ, love, is the more that he suffered in a sense, the greater the precious odour that came from him. And again, we ask ourselves, what about us? How would people describe our lives? Would they describe our lives as being sweet and fragrant? Or would people say that we're bitter and sour? Do people enjoy our company? Remember how children wanted to be around Christ? People came to Christ because he was wonderfully sweet. People flocked to hear him. And yet what about us? We can so often be tetchy, can't we, and grumpy and difficult. You know, when people are in pain, we can often, they can be even more tetchy and grumpy, can't we? You know, when you get out of bed on the wrong side and you, everything goes wrong, and the people want to be around us. You see, we should strive to be like Christ. We should pray that our lives would be sweet. There would be this wonderful fragrance. There's nothing worse than a miserable Christian. There's nothing worse than meeting one of these Christians who always goes around with a sour face. No, our lives should be ones that are fragrant because think of all that Christ has done for us. He gave his, his whole life, as we're thinking here, as this meat offering, this drink offering poured out for us. You see... If we are to have fragrant lives, we need to spend more time with Christ. Smells rub off, don't they? I remember as a, as a child, I went to a friend's house and his parents smoked excessively. And when I came home, my mum was furious with me. She thought I'd been smoking because everything I was wearing stank of smoke. And she, you know, grounded me and, you know, until she found out the true story. But you see, smells rub off. And you see, if we are to, to be more fragrant in our lives, we need to spend more time with Christ. And we need to lose the stench of this world, and so we need to spend less time with the world and the things of this world, and more and more time with Christ. You see, that's how we, in a sense, have fragrant lives, by spending time with Christ, who was sweet and fragrant in all that he did. And then we've seen then these, these opening ingredients in verse 1. But notice um, another ingredient, a final ingredient that was to be included. That's if you go down into verse 13. And in this particular ingredient, we're noticing the incorruption of Christ's life. The incorruption. You see, the next ingredient was salt. Verse 13 says, And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. 
three times in that verse, salt, salt, salt. You must apply salt to the offering. It had to be seasoned with this salt. And of course, salt is a preservative. It preserves against corruption and decay. And it also speaks of perpetuity, doesn't it? Something that lasts. You notice that's why we have that expression there, a covenant of salt. Thou shalt... Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God. In other words, it was a perpetual covenant. It was to last, it was to go on, because it's of salt. And salt speaks of that perpetuity and lasting. And of course, that was in direct contradiction to the other ingredient that they were not to include. Go back to verse 11. They were not to include leaven. Notice that in verse 11 there, no meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven. So we notice there the frankincense was to be offered but not the honey and here they were to bring the salt but not the leaven. Salt has that wonderful preservation but leaven is in scripture always speaks of spiritual corruption and sourness. In the New Testament all the references of leaven, you think of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, the leaven of Herod and so on. It was spiritual corruptness. And so when they brought the offering, they were not to bring anything that corrupted the sacrifice, the offering, but they were to bring salt which preserved it. And you remember how um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians and chapter 5, Again, he uses the language. You see, Paul, of course, being a Pharisee, was just so soaked, wasn't he, in the Old Testament. Uh, He uses the language all the way through. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. He says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And verse 8 says, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And there's a, here's an example for us, isn't it? In our lives of service, we're not to bring any works to God mixed with any kind of sin. He mentions their malice, doesn't he? He mentions wickedness. And yet so often that's true in our lives, isn't it? Even when we come to the house of God and we bring our praise, it's mixed. Even when we do a service for God, whatever it might be within the church, it can often be mixed with pride, can't it? Or perhaps we can mix it with malice and and hatred or hypocrisy. We were thinking of hypocrisy only a few weeks ago, weren't we? And so often our works can be mixed with that. We're doing them not to God, but for others to see or for ourselves. But what a contrast when we think of the life of Christ. There's no hypocrisy, was there? His life was never mixed with leaven. There was no leaven of pride or, or malice in his life. No, his life was, as it were, coated and seasoned with salt. His life, his works were incorruptible. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it, that the life of Christ, his righteousness which is given to us, it's an incorruptible righteousness. It will never fade. Hebrews tells us, don't we, that we're in an everlasting covenant, a covenant of salt. You see, as God's people, we will never be cut off, we will never be cast away from God because 
uh, that covenant that we have is not occasional, it's not a temporary, it's not for only a short time, but it's an everlasting covenant. That garment of righteousness that we were thinking about even just last week doesn't fade out, it doesn't wear away because of the salt that we have mentioned here. It's a covenant of salt. Christ's life, there was no corruption in it. And we need to pray for ourselves, don't we, that that would be true of us. Even the best of our works are mixed with a degree of corruption and leaven. But as Paul says, we need to purge it out of our lives. Purge that malice, that bitterness, that wickedness, whatever it might be, so that we might bring us an offering to God that is acceptable with him. So we've seen then these different ingredients, the four ingredients that were included and the two that were not included and how they speak of Christ. And so the offering, the offerer would bring this fine flour and the oil and the frankincense and notice as we read there was different ways that this could be offered. Much like the burnt offering, there was different provision made for the rich and for the poor. You had there in verse 4 an oven that would have been for the wealthy. And then you come right down to verse 7, even the poorest who just had a frying pan. You see, there was provision made in this offering for every kind of person. And as we thought last week, Christ's offering is sufficient for all. But there's just one final thing I want you to notice, just as I close. And that's in verse 12. Because in verse 12, we're given something that's an exception. It says there, As for the oblation of the firstfruits, ye shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be burnt on the altar for a sweet savour. So normally when the offerings were brought, it would be placed upon the fire, part of it, and the rest was given to the priests to eat, to Aaron and to his sons, to the males, and they were to eat it there in the courtyard. But here with the offering of the firstfruits, it was not to be burnt. And so we ask ourselves the question, well, why was the offering of the firstfruits not to be placed upon the altar? Well, if you turn to Leviticus chapter 23, we have here a description of the firstfruits. And uh, just as I was studying and going back over this offering this week, I just, uh, um, as I looked at this verse and thought about this, you know when you something gets pieced together in your mind and it, you realise how it fits together. It just uh, it interested me and I hope it interests you and it, uh, you'll see what I'm driving at here. But Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 10, it speaks about the wave offering, how they were to bring the sheaves of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. Verse 11 says, And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it. Now the previous verses have spoken about the Passover. And so the first fruits were to be offered at the feast of the Passover. And when was the offering of the first fruits to be offered to the Lord? It was on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So the first fruits was to be brought on the first day of the week after the Sabbath of the Passover. And of course when we think about Christ... He gave his life, didn't he, on that Friday of the Passover. He gave up his life, and then it was the Sabbath day. And when was the first fruits to be offered? Well, it was on the first day of the week, on the day of resurrection. 
And so why was the first fruits not to be burnt? Well, because, you see, Christ's work was already done. And the emblem, the type, would not be fulfilled, so the first fruits were to be placed by the altar. They couldn't be burnt. Why? Because Christ's work was done. The first fruit speaks of his resurrection. You remember what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. You see, it couldn't be burnt because it would spoil the picture. Christ's offering had already been done. It had already been finished. And so it couldn't be burnt upon the altar to God as an offering to God because it was done and it was finished. And so when we see here this little, it's just a little side note really, isn't it, here in verse 12. It shall not be burnt on the altar. It was to be placed by the side of the altar. Why? Because it would spoil the picture of Christ and his resurrection that his work was finished and he is now the first fruits to all those who have slept. We can praise God, can't we, that we worship this evening a risen Christ. His work is accepted. His work is finished. He doesn't need to be burnt on the altar. And we can praise God that he is the first fruits for us. He is risen. And one day we shall rise with him and we shall be with him for all eternity. And so I trust this evening as we've looked at this meat offering and really just skimmed over parts of it, that we've seen how it points to Christ, Christ, our glorious meat offering.